I'm glad you're here. Um, we have a, a very sort of uh, exciting turning point in the in the Torah in the in the year right now, which is the the arrival of uh, Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father, on the scene, and everything changes. The entire world changes with this with this. Uh, with this entrance, and I just want to go into a little bit who Abraham is and what um, this whole parsha of Lech Lecha means, um, his uh, command to go forth, and of course Lech Lecha is a very interesting construction in the Hebrew. It actually means to go literally to oneself. So on, on the one hand, it means to actually journey forth. But at the same time, it's um, talking on many levels, and it's saying that that, that journey also has to be a, an inward journey. So, so the two have to um, exist uh, in tandem with each other. And that's a lot of life right there. And that's expressed within this word, Lech Lecha. And of course, Lech Lecha is the Gematria 100. And it's at 100 that Abraham gives birth to his first son with, with Sarah who's Yitzchak. So, so you see the, this journey to go forward, but also to go within, is the same gematria as the miraculous birth of a new creation, Yitzchak. So in other words, the, the text is telling us on a very deep level that when one goes through life like this, when one is brave enough to, to have the courage to go forward, and at the same time that they're going forward to be in sync with what their soul is communicating to them, something will be born. And something, something miraculous will, will occur. We're, we're taking birth on a metaphoric level right now. That in other words, something will come into the world in a, in a, in a very surprising, amazing way. If one is able to, to walk that tightrope. Um, it's, it's a difficult tightrope because sometimes when you have to make progress, um, you have to stick to the original plan. Um, and yet sometimes when you go forward within a project, the project itself demands that you be somewhat uh, in sync with the changes that are arising that have to be addressed. In other words, sometimes a, a big project especially with so many X factors and variables like life itself, demands that, that, that a certain spontaneity and a certain um, ability to adjust things on the fly. But at the same time, if you improvise too much, then you can lose sight of what the initial goal was and what the initial set of instructions were to begin with. And so this, this Lech Lecha process of going forward and yet going within, and yet each one supporting the other, is, 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 is very, very challenging. This is very, very challenging. But if one is able to do it and remain in sync, then something great takes place at the end. Like we say, Lechelka is 100, and at the age of 100, Abraham gives birth to, to Yitzchak. So, so I want to backtrack a little bit, and I want to just mention a medrash, um, which is, uh, I think, very interesting, which is, if Abraham was so great, and Abraham really is so great, he really is so great, 
You know, every year, it's like I, I have a debate with myself, which is, who is the greatest person that ever lived? And it's sort of like, it would seem that you would have to say Moshe. You'd have to say Moses. I mean, when you just make a list of what Moses accomplished, it's beyond, 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 beyond. He was, he was a human being. He was born of flesh and blood. And yet, he was, he was more, more than a human being. He was like an angel. At the same time, though, when you start to study Abraham, you say, it's impossible that anyone was greater than Abraham. You know, so it's, it's really, it's really like, well, anyway, let me give you a couple of um, teachings that support the idea that it's, that Abraham's the one, that he's really the greatest ever, okay? One is, there's a, a very interesting um, verse in the Torah, it's coming, it's the very, very first verse after the account of the seven days of creation. So, you know, God sort of lays out his blueprint, what he did the first seven days. And of course, you should all know that those seven days, according to Torah sources, um, could have been billions of years, because it's on the fourth day that God hangs the sun and the moon in the sky, which means that's the beginning of our concept, anyway, of a 24-hour day. So that means before then, and I'm quoting the Vilna Go now, and many, many sages from hundreds of years ago, that that initial period could have been billions of years. So there's no problem whatsoever with the idea of uh, the age of the universe and the account uh, given in the Torah, just, just so you should know and be reassured. But after the account of the first seven days, quote-unquote, the very, very first verse that comes after that is the following. Ele todos Hashemaim va'aretz, behibaram, that's the key word, biyom asos Hashem, elukim eretz v'shamayim. These are the products of the heaven and the earth, so it's sort of like a recap, when they were created on the day that Hashem made the, the earth and heaven. Okay, so there's a lot in that verse. That's one of the most uh, loaded verses in the entire Torah. But I just want to zero in on one word here. So again, just to give you context, We've just gone through the seven days of creation, right? We haven't even gotten into the whole... Now, on the sixth day, human beings were created. On the seventh day, Shabbos was created. This is now the first verse after. And then after this, we go into the whole Garden of Eden story in depth. So before we've even gone into the Garden of Eden story, we have this verse with this word, Behibaram. That's the word I told you to focus in on. Um... And it, it, it means, in, officially it means, these are the products of the heaven and the earth when they were created. Created is Behibaram. But the Zohar says, rearrange the letters of Behibaram, and it spells out the word Ba'abraham. Meaning to say that it was for the sake of Abraham that the entire world was created. So, you have a reference to Abraham as the sort of model human being from the very, very beginning of the Torah. That's astonishing. You know, just to show you his level of importance. Not only that, but you, the, the Medrash brings uh, another interesting phraseology. At one point, Adam Harishon, meaning the first person, you can just call him Adam, because there's no other person who that's going to apply to. Adam means man, so just call him Adam. But at one point, the Torah refers to him as Ha-Adam, the man. So why do you need that, that, that qualifier, the man? So who's the man? And the rabbis tell you, oh, the man 
is referring to Abraham. And that, so then they ask a great question. So then why didn't God create Abraham and put him in the Garden of Eden? Right? And they said, you know what? Because there was a concern. If he had made a mistake, like Adam had made a mistake, then everything would have been over. <laughs> Can you imagine? So, so it was almost this insurance policy of, of putting Adam there first. So anyway... There's a lot more to that thought, and I don't want to overstate it. The, 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 the main thing I want to bring is just the simplest aspect of that teaching, just that Ha-Adam, the man, from the very beginning of the Torah, is, is a reference to Abraham, our sages teach. So again, this is all to show you the, the primacy of who Abraham is as the model human being. Now, now I want to go further now and, and talk about the, the, the full-on introduction to Abraham, how, how the Torah introduces him. One very interesting thing is, so this, that's by Lechlecha, which we had mentioned earlier. That's the name of the portion. So, Abraham at this point in his life is 75 years old, and we're really meeting him for the first time in, 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 a, in a full way. So, so we have many, many teachings and stories about Abraham throughout his life. And yet the Torah is really introducing us to him officially at the age of 75. Also keep in mind that when Moshe really began his career um, as a leader of the Jewish people, talking to the burning bush, or the burning bush, God talking to him through the burning bush, um, Moshe was 80 at that point when he was charged with taking the Jews out of Egypt. So, to me, I'm very reassured by the fact that both of their careers started at 75 and 80. You know, today is, we live in a very age-conscious society. So to know that by us Jews, you know, you really don't get going until, you know, you've lived, uh, have a lifetime of experience. Because, you know, getting it right is, is not easy. And, and so God doesn't just hand these giant tasks to kids. And by kids, I mean people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, right? Those are still considered kids on some levels. So we can all sort of like exhale and just like give ourselves, a, you know, just a, a, little more, a little more sort of slack and realize that, that, that life has a massive learning curve and, and just to approach it in, in that way. And, and God is teaching us in, by, the, by the ages of these people. So Abraham is 75 years old. And hopefully we'll get to this teaching later, which is very interesting. Um, and the Maharal asks it. Um, I learned from Rabbi Wolfson, why, why is it that the Torah begins with the discussion of Abraham at 75 when we know so many stories about his earlier life? Why aren't those included in the, in the, in the Chumash itself, in the, in the five books itself? Um, so that's, that's a question that God willing we're going to get back to. Um, so, but anyway, what's being laid out here through Abraham's journey is, I think, something that every single person needs to know, uh, and um, it's something that I, I learned from Rabbi Orlovsky, and it's something that, ever since I heard it, it's been one of the kind of foundational ways that I've, I've come to understand life. And, uh, and let me share it with you. So, so, so Abraham has reached this age. 
And God makes him this great promise. Avraham is tested with ten tests. And one of them is that he should, at a, at a period in his life where he's become settled, he's um, actually created a whole community. They're, they're converts. It says that Avraham spoke to the men and Sarah spoke to the women. And that's, that's very important in, um, in Kirov, in, in outreach, that really, ideally, men are dealing with men and women are dealing with women, you know, ideally, you know, especially when it's a one-on-one. Uh, in these matters, spiritual matters. Um, that's the way Abraham and Sarah did it. And, and they created this big community, and it's sort of thriving, and it's doing very well. And then Abraham tells him, okay, take the entire enterprise, and then just go. And, and I'll show you where. This is the amazing thing. God doesn't tell him where to go. And I don't know if you've ever been in the car with someone who doesn't really give you directions, but if you've ever been driving and then they just tell you just periodically, oh, take a left here or take a right here, and you don't know how long the journey is or where you're going, it's very unnerving. It's very unnerving. And also, when, you, when you've never been to a particular place and you don't even know where you're going, Everything, every single step of the way is like, is this it? Is that it? Is this it? Is that it? It really plays with your mind. It's very, very confusing. So this was an aspect of the test. And um, so, so Abraham is promised three things. Um, that, that if he does this, God is going to bless him. That he'll be wealthy. That he'll be famous. And that he'll have children. Okay, Rashi spells out those three blessings. And I want to zero in on, on one of them because it seems to be um, almost antithetical to what you would imagine the Torah would, would, would promise or what God would promise a person. Uh, fame. Like you think, like fame, especially in today's day and age, uh, you know, this, we're, we're, we're meeting in Los Angeles right now. That's sort of like the headquarters of this sort of this cult of celebrity, which is sort of like, you know, taking the world in a stranglehold. Like, like really, would, what is the Torah aspect of fame, you know, that, that, that God would promise him such a thing? So let's just backtrack a moment, because um, fame is an English word. So I wanted to look in the text itself and see what the Hebrew was, because it seemed like maybe there was a more precise definition of it, or precise translation. And um, really what the text itself says is that God says, I'm going to make your name great. Okay? So, your, your name is going to be big. Okay? It's going to be great. So then Rashi comments that he uses the word, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this, I'm just saying it from memory right now, Tuvcha. Okay, that that and which and the the root of that is actually your teva, your nature is going to become known, and that's I think a very interesting distinction, because in sort of like the more celebrity-driven culture, the pop culture aspect of celebrity, people kind of just want you to know their name, right? Just know my name. But I don't want you to know who, what I'm really like. <laughs> that, like, no, 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 no. Just buy my record, know my name. Come to my concert, 
wear the t-shirt with my face on it, but as for all the details of my life, eh, so much, you know, you don't have to know. So, it seems that what God is saying is the opposite. That God is saying, no, Abraham, you're so great. What I'm going to do is, I'm going to let everyone know what you're really like. Who you really are. What your nature really is. And that that's the actual translation of this concept of, I'll make you famous. Because when the world then understands that such a person could exist, then this is like a, a just a, a breakthrough. This is this is this is breakthrough stuff. He becomes like the most exalted role model that we've ever had, and and that's what it means. Now, interestingly, this same word, which which means one's nature, also in Hebrew means a coin. And so the. Um, the sages teach, and this is like, I guess, some, I don't know if this is anthropology or sociology or history or whatever it is, but the way things were set up back then, each of the communities or tribes or clans or whatever they're called had their own coinage. And some were um, considered more reputable than others. And Abraham Avinu minted a coin. And his, um, his currency was the most favored currency in, in the world at that point, because it was the most trustworthy. So in other words, if this was supposed to be an ounce of silver, it really was an ounce of silver, and everybody knew that. And so they loved his currency. So this is another level of understanding that his coin, not just his nature, but his coin was made well-known. It's another level in understanding this. Now, interestingly, you could ask yourself, what was on the currency? What did the coin look like? And this is very beautiful. So they say that it had a picture of Abraham and Sarah as a young couple on one side and as an old couple on the other side. Now, I learned this from Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, a very, very beautiful teaching. You would think that, so it's chronological. Right? Here they are, young. Here they are, old. Still happy, still together. Very nice, right? But now listen to this. He says that's not, that's not what it is. It's the first glimpse of them is of them old. And then chronologically, the second glimpse is of them young. Because they had children late in life. And that through their lifestyle, through their grasp of God and the inf- infinite that that was sort of a fountain of youth for them. That, that by tapping into Torah, they were actually able to live in a more vibrant way as they got older. And so that that's actually the, the narrative of the coin, if you will. So, so now let's, let's go further. And this is really getting deeper now, and this is really more the kind of like these foundational things that I referred to earlier is, is what we're going to start on right now. So, so Abraham does this, and this is a big test. He has to leave his, his place of birth, his father's home. He's got to go to a place where people don't know him. He's got to start again late in life, totally uproot himself, go to a place where he doesn't even know where he's going, you know. And uh, Abraham agrees to all of that because he loves God beyond, beyond, beyond. And um, now, put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a moment. You get to Israel. 
And at that point, you probably think, well, you know what? I got to Israel. I did what God asked me to do. It was tremendous. It wasn't easy, but, you know, I did it. You think, okay, good times now, right? So what is the first thing that he encounters when he gets to Israel? And the answer is a famine. And this is massively counterintuitive. Because you think, well, God asked me to do this. So right now it should just be blue skies forever. So he gets into a famine situation. There's nothing to eat. And he thinks, okay, what am I supposed to do? So he decides to go with Sarah down into Egypt, where there's food. He hears there's food there. So he goes down into Egypt, and you think, okay, well, he'll go to Egypt, and he'll get some food and whatever, and he'll get back on track. Sarah gets kidnapped. His wife gets kidnapped by the king. And it looks like he's never going to get her back. So, so you, again, massively counterintuitive. You would think, how could that be the case? Now, now we have to go further. And what I'm telling you right now is, I think, one of the most important, and I'm not overstating this, for me anyway, one of the absolute most important lessons in life that we can learn from this right now. You see, most of us really think like, if anything is going wrong in my life, it's because I did something wrong. And by the way, we do have that concept. We do have that concept. And let me just give you a source for it. The Rambam says that if things are going wrong in a person's life, they have to examine their own life. And if they don't, he uses an amazing word. He says, if they don't, it's cruelty. They're actually being cruel to themselves if they don't do what's called a cheshvan nefesh, which means an account, like an audit of their soul, if you will. Right? So, So a person has to do that. Okay. But what we're learning right now is an entirely different lesson. Because who is more blameless than Avraham Avinu? Avraham Avinu didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. So if he didn't do anything wrong, why is he being confronted with challenges? And this is the breakthrough idea. We're here to work, folks. (laughs) That's what it is. This life is a work session. And there's lots of fantastic things in this world. Massively long lists of, of pleasurable, wonderful things and God wants you to engage in them and God wants you to experience them and have them and all the rest. However, one can't lose sight of the idea that we're here to accomplish something. That we have a mission and a purpose, which is the perfection of the world itself. Now I want to give you what I think is a very powerful, in my opinion, example of this, proof of this, if you will. Most people, if you, if you say to them, oh, what's, what, what was the Garden of Eden like? Right, as the Torah understands it. What was the Garden of Eden like? They'll tell you, well, that's, you know, that's, that was a place of all pleasure and all bliss. Right? And then what happened? Well, then Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge and everything sort of fell apart. 
And we're still trying to get back to this idea of Adam and Eve before eating from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. That's kind of what we're trying to get back to. So I would suggest to you that that's completely incorrect. And, and, and with the following thing, which is that before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, like, let me just put it to you this way. I heard Rabbi Shlomo Karlach say this with my own ears. He said, if, if the Garden of Eden was such a perfect place, what was the snake doing there? <laughs> a very good question. What was the snake doing there? Not only that, but Adam and Eve, before they ate from the tree of knowledge, Adam was commanded to work and guard the tree of knowledge. To work and guard. Now, the rabbis say that's a positive thing and a negative thing. In other words, I guess that means to develop the garden and to not do what was prohibited, like maybe eat from the tree of knowledge, for instance. Okay? However, we're to understand that. Now, the 613 mitzvot can be organized in different ways. One of the primary ways that they're organized is the things that one's supposed to do and the the things that one is supposed to refrain from doing. And the rabbis teach that all 613 commandments were actually contained within those two commandments to work and to guard the Garden of Eden. Which means that Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before they ate from their tree of knowledge, while they were still in this glorious, blissful place of the Garden of Eden, had work to do. It was a work session from the very outset of the creation of human beings. So, the reason why that that might sound strange to us is because we live in, in this really strange society right now. Which is like, it's like one of the most pleasure-driven ears in the history of the world. And every single thing is, is every billboard, every commercial is all about creature comforts. Like, let me tell you, I, I'll just tell you a personal story about just how pathetic I am. <laughs> Which is, I, I just downloaded this, the, the new operating platform, or actually my son did it for me, for, for the iPhone. So it's called iOS 7, right? So, so anyway... There's this great app, um, which was done by an Israeli company called Waze. If you don't know it, it's really cool. W-A-Z-E. Um, and uh, it'll tell you, like, the fastest way to get to a certain place. And it, it works really, really well. And it, and it takes you on, like, surpri- surprising routes that you, you never go. Like, I've been living in Los Angeles for a number of years, and I'm seeing brand new parts of Los Angeles. It's taking me through all these surprising places, and it's, it's, it's really cool. So I, I like it a lot. But the thing is, is that on my phone, it's like um, if, uh, if, if someone writes to you in an email an address, like where to meet or something like that, you can press on that and it will send you to Google Maps, right? But Google Maps isn't Waze. It'll just kind of tell you how to get there. It won't tell you necessarily the fastest way to get there based on the current traffic conditions. So what I have to do is copy and paste it into the Waze app, right? So I got so excited on Friday. And I've done it incorrectly, by the way. And, and it's caused me to go to different cities in Los Angeles <laughs> with the same street name. 
I won't go into that, but I mean, like, really, like, you know, like, portraits and lameness. I mean, really bad stuff. I mean, but anyway, but that was my fault. But, but, but that aside, so this Friday, so I, someone sends me an address where to, where to meet them. And I press on it, and then instead of it just sending me to Google Maps, it sends me to a menu that says, what app would you like to process this address? And one of them was Waze, because they knew it was on my phone. And I pressed Waze, and I was like, this is so great! This is so great! And then, but the reason why I'm telling you this is like, what was I literally celebrating? I was so excited that I didn't have to write the address from one platform to another. I mean, this is a minute amount of work that I've been saved. Minute! And yet, I, I experienced it as though it was, wow, this godsend. So, it, I'm just using this as a snapshot of talking about just how coddled we are. You know, in, in, in today's society, that if, if one is saved seconds they, they feel as though it's like, wow, you gave me a new liver, you know? It's like, it's, it's, a little, it's a little wacky. But we have to just take a moment to realize, like, the fact that this is a work session. This world is a work session. So, so anyway. Now, I, the, the, the headline here, though, is that that's not a bad thing. And not only that, but that one should be reassured if they encounter challenges in their life that it doesn't necessarily mean that those challenges are coming because they did something wrong. One has to, as a step one, ask themselves, did I mess up? If I did, how can I fix it? That, that's true. But one shouldn't sort of live with life's challenges as a sense of an ongoing sense of I'm being you know, punished or something like that. Because that's not necessarily accurate at all. And we learn that from the life of Abraham. That, that that's just, it's okay if you have challenges. That's okay. And not only is it okay, but that's actually plan A. And so, when one hears it like that, and this is what the Torah is saying, then one can say, okay, well, if life is a series of challenges, and I don't have to be afraid of that, then it's sort of like, okay, well, then I'm just sort of stepping up into the batter's box, and, you know, balls are going to be pitched to me, and I can understand that they're going to come on a regular basis, because that's normal, and that's life, and I haven't done anything wrong, and let me just play the game of life, and I'll just do the best I can. This one I hit out of the park, this one I swing and I miss, but it's okay. It's okay. And I can know that today I'm going to receive some challenges because that's what the world is made of. Every day I'm going to receive some challenges. That's okay. So, with this in mind, I want to go a little bit deeper. Which is that the end of this week's Parsha, the end of Lech Lecha, which begins with this journey, right? So why do we have this journey? That's, that's, that we have to ask ourselves. Why have the journey? Why have the challenges at all? Where is it all coming from? Where is it all going? So the end of the Parsha ends with Abraham at the age of 99 being circumcised. That's, so that's sort of like the, if you will, the book ends to this. He begins this journey, 
And at the end of the, this section anyway, which is very fundamental, Lechotha is one of the, you know, most, mo, one of the most monumental parshas in the whole Torah. Now, just pause to tell you, uh, just for me, uh, uh, just a, a moving story that happened to me um, in terms of my interaction with uh, Rav Shlomo Karlovach. When I was 14 years old, I, I went to talk to him um, about uh, just, you know, something going on in my life. In fact, I wrote this up as an article. I'm just going to, if you want to read it, it's called um, A Place for the Light. It's on uh, Torah on iTunes.com. A nice piece, A Place for the Light. It was on Ish.com. Um, but anyway, I'm just going to, uh, just to bridge it because I, I want to focus on something else. But, um, but I, I was asking uh, Rib Shlomo just this big question in my life at that point. So I was 14, and he asked me to walk with him. He was going to give a teaching at a place on the Upper West Side. And so, you know, for me to be out at night at 14 on a school night with an adult was like very strange for me. And just kind of walking through the neighborhood to where he was going to this brownstone to give over this teaching. That was kind of like very adult for me at that, at that stage in my life. But anyway, we walked. And then cut to 10 years later, I, I was 24 at the time. And at that point, I really had decided that I really want to keep Shabbos. And, and I, I, I want to just try to, try to live these things that have been so close inside of me for so many years. Uh, in a more, you know, clear way. Uh, and, and, and I saw him uh, in Los Angeles, and I said to him, you know, now I want to uh, take the next step or whatever it is. And then he said to me, now you have to understand, Reb Shlomo dealt with thousands of people a year, probably. He interacted probably with thousands of people a year, without exaggeration. And now this is 10 years. So that means he was dealing with I don't know how many, I don't know what the math is. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So he said to me, he said, David, do you remember that walk we took 10 years ago? And I was like, yeah. And then he said to me, do you remember what Parsha it was? I said, no. He said, it was Lech Lecha. Right? It's funny because our whole meeting was just kind of walking together, you know? And it was it was Lechacha. It was this week's Parsha, the beginning of the journey. That was the beginning of my journey, really. And uh, and then he said to me, "Do you remember what we talked about?" And then he told me everything that he told me. So, you know, just well, I guess this is a good, as good a time as any to advertise something, which is. Um, Part two of Reb Shlomo Karlovach's Torah commentary on Breshis just came out, like a few days ago. So the, that's the brown volume edited by Rabbi Shlomo Katz. Um, and so I highly recommend it. And um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I say this with a, a full heart, that there are teachings in there. If you were to sit and learn Torah full time for years, you'll never grasp you will never come across these teachings. They'll never occur to you. You'll never hear them from anyone else. And they're available in this book. So there's amazing depths that have been made just available to you right now. 
So um, it's called the Evan Shlomo, and part two of Breshis has just come out. And if you don't have part one, try to get part one, because the teachings are just beyond, beyond, beyond. Okay. So now let's get back to this idea that Lech Lecha begins with this journey, and it ends with the circumcision of Abraham. What is that? How are we to understand that framing? And, and, and especially in the idea that this world is a, is a work session, and that that's okay. That that's okay. So let's try to understand the mechanics um, or the, the, um, the depths of what happens when a child is circumcised, what a, what, a, what a bris really is. Because really all of the Jewish vision is actually contained in that, in, in, in an amazing way. Um, so the first thing that a person has to kind of realize or ask themselves is, if you look at what the human anatomy is, it's so radically complex that it's, I mean, it, 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 defies, it defies everything. And the more you study human biology and anatomy, the, the more amazed you get, and, and the more mysterious it becomes. Okay, so given that, if God were going to create a person like that, do you think that he needed to include one little extra piece of skin that he didn't want? I mean, that's the least of it. It's the least of it. He, he, you're gonna make, you're gonna make this amazing monument that no one can duplicate, and then you just leave an extra piece of skin because you had to. You, you couldn't figure out how to do it without that other, that extra little piece of skin. So clearly, that was put there on purpose. And the reason why it was put there on purpose, why God put it there on purpose, is so that we could be partners with God in terms of finishing off the the person. As it says, God says, let us make man. Meaning to say that God wants you to be a partner with him in terms of the completion of self, in terms of the refinement of self. And so all of that is contained with the idea of the circumcision. You just take that little snip and you've done your part in terms of being partners with God. Okay. So... So, interestingly, it's done on the eighth day. And we know that eight stands for, you know, eight stands for Mashiach. Right? Because eight, seven is the natural order of this world. The world was created in seven days. And the Maral famously says that the eighth day means beyond nature. So, it's sort of the, the next stage. Okay. So, interestingly, who do we say announces Mashiach? The eighth day symbolizes the messianic era. Who symbolize, who comes and announces the arrival of Mashiach? Is Eliyahu, Elijah. And who do we say is present on the eighth day at every bris? Elijah. So that's the idea. It's not just that he's attending your bris. He's the one who's there, who's announcing the next era of humankind. Because remember, a human being is a microcosm of the entire world. So when the human being is sort of being ushered into this next stage with the bris milah on the eighth day and the completion of creation, then you see that Eliyahu's presence is very, very appropriate over there. Now I want to tell you something. Let's just finish this thought, then I want to show you a very interesting word in the Torah. 
So the idea is like this. We are partners with God in terms of finishing creation and bringing it to its next stage. And that's what all the challenges are all about. They're not just challenges because God wants to give us a hard time. You know? I mean, I've said it before. It says in the Tehillim, in the Psalms of King David, taste and see that God is good. This world, and I'm not trying to be facetious or funny at all, this world could have been exactly the same and you wouldn't have never have known otherwise if God made it in black and white. Colors? Colors are like the greatest gift. There absolutely don't have to be colors here. You, you would be living more or less the exact same life, life if everything was in black and white. More or less. You know what? Think of all the foods that are here. Kumquats is like my favorite example. Like, I'm, I'm convinced I could have led exactly the same life without kumquats, you know? But God said otherwise. God, God made, like, the panoply of, of tastes so enormous, and it's only because God is good. It's only as a sign of love. So, so but nonetheless, we have challenges. And so why are the challenges there? And the answer is, those challenges are the currency, the medium, in which we usher the world into its next stage. The energy that we put into, and the dedication that we put into, lifts the entire world up. And soon, there will be that critical mass where the world is actually transformed and enters its next stage. And that's all done by us overcoming various challenges. All of us different challenges in our own lives. We all have different types of challenges. And so it's all to bring the world as partners with God in creating the next stage of humanity. Now with that in mind, I want to show you like a very, very interesting word. This is, um, if you want to see it for yourself, it's um, chapter 2. Uh, verse 7, okay, in, in Genesis, in Breshis, it says, um, and God formed, and Hashem God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he blew into his nostrils the soul of life, and man became a living being. By the way, Ankylo says, translates that as man became a talking being, and that the most um, essential aspect of your humanity is your power of speech. Okay, this is a very... This is actually the verse that, that describes the creation of human beings. So it's a very huge verse in the Torah. But it begins with this very interesting word, by Yitzar. Now, Yatsar means to form. It's talking about the formation of the first human being. God sort of made the first human being out of earth. Uh, Adama is earth. And, and, and if you rearrange the words of uh, letters of Adama, which means earth, it spells Ha'adam, which means the man. Okay? So our physicality is very, kind of very, made from the earth. That's why they say that human beings have this lazy streak, because it's kind of, we're kind of made out of the earth. But God blew his breath into us. That's our soul. So again, what's really interesting about this is, is that human beings are literally, and I'm not trying to be um, poetic here, but just this simple, the simple reality of it is poetry itself. Human beings are a fusion of heaven and earth. 
Because each human being is a microcosm of the world. And your soul is actually an aspect of heaven, and your physicality is Adama. It is earth itself. So each person is this amazing fusion of heaven and earth together. And if you look at the prayer that we say after we leave the bathroom, thanking God that our body is working, um, we, 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 we talk about the wondrousness of God and the Ramah, who's the um, Ashkenazi um, halachic decisor in the Shulchan Aruch, explains that what is this wondrous quality of a human being? Right? And he says that we have different orifices, different holes in our body. Imagine your nostrils or your ears or your mouth, right? And yet your soul doesn't fly out of them. <laughs> now, let me put it in a sort of more shocking way so that you understand exactly what he's saying, because you might not be getting it yet, or the fullness of what he's getting yet. Imagine I blow up a balloon and I don't tie the end. <laughs> And the air stays in the balloon. How could that be? That's wondrous. He's saying that that is exactly what's going on with a human being. This idea of your body being a fusion of heaven and earth is very real. How could it be that the heaven doesn't run away from the earth? How, do, how, how can it be that you can go through life with this, this really untenable mixture and yet it still works? That's a human being. But we still haven't gotten to the point yet. So, this word, Vayitzar, means to form, but normally speaking, it's spelled with one Yud. This is the normal spelling. Yud Tzadi Resh. And when it talks about animals, that's how it's spelled. Yud Tzadi Resh. Okay? And that's their formation. When it's talking about the, the formation of human beings right here, it's spelled in the following way. Yud Yud Sadi Resh. There's an extra Yud in there. And of course, interestingly, well, anyway, so Yud Yud Sadi Resh. So, so this extra Yud, Rashi brings an amazing teaching. He says, unlike animals, this Yud actually stands for Alamaba, for the next world. And that human beings have implanted in them from the very outset. Remember, this is talking about the creation of the very first human being. The ability to be resurrected from the dead. Right? It's pretty heavy, right? <laughs> that in other words, each human being has, from the time of their creation, two yuds planted within them. One yud stands for life in this world. The next yud stands for life in the next world. And that's in pointed distinction from animals. So, let's get back to Abraham, and now we can start to wrap all these things up, okay? So, getting back to Abraham, this idea that this Lech Lecha and all of the challenges that we face, remember, Abraham faced ten, ten tests. All these challenges culminate in what, at the end of Lech Lecha? This bris, which is the finishing of this world, being partners with God in terms of finishing this world and going into the next era. Because each person is implanted with two yuds, which is not just life in this world, but it's life in the next world. Meaning to say, see it all as one. 
When you look at your own life, understand the spectrum and the enormity of the canvas that's been presented to each one of us. That we live forever. That we live forever. But this time is the most special time. Because we have a body for like that long. The ability to transform this world, right? The opportunities that are presented to us right now are the most valuable. Like it says that angels gasp when a person stops himself from speaking Lashon Hara, from slandering another person. It says angels gasp in envy. So we think, ah, you know what I got to do? I got to go here. Okay, here's a poor man. I'm handing him something, I guess. I don't know. I'm distracted. I got to get to something, you know? And we, we don't realize that it's sort of like, here's some diamonds. Here's some more diamonds. You like Van Gogh? Here's a stack of Van Goghs. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, these Van Goghs are too heavy. I, you know, so it's like, no, no. Every single moment is like a ridiculous opportunity, ridiculous off-the-charts opportunity that we're being presented right now. Okay, so now I want to tell you two quick stories. One is, I want to answer this question before I forget. Why does the Maharal say that the, really the telling of the life of Abraham begins when he's 75, when we know so much about him earlier, and when he did so many enormous things beforehand, weren't those worthy of being put into the Torah? Like, for instance, one of my favorite stories of all time, I'm sure you know it, it's a Medrash, which says that Abraham's father was an idol maker. He was like the chief idol maker. Can you imagine? And Abraham's father tells him as a young boy, Abraham is a young boy, watch the shop while I'm away. So Abraham, like, just can't take the idols, because he knows there's only one God. So what does he do? He smashes all of the idols, except for the biggest one, and he puts the axe in the hand of the biggest idol. And his father, you know, this is his father's shop. This is how he does business. You can imagine how his father reacts. And he says to him, what happened? He said, the idols got into a fight, and the biggest one destroyed all the smaller ones. And his father says, that's a lie. You know that's not true. They can't walk, they can't talk. What do you mean? He says, well, if they can't walk and they can't talk, why do you pray to them? So like, game over. <laughs> you know, that's... How do you recover from that? that so that's, that's Abraham. So we've got stories like that about Abraham's life, and yet, why do we join the telling of his life at age 75? with no mention of any of these things. And there are many, many more amazing stories like this. So the Maharal says, such a beautiful thought. He says, it's because you should know that God selected Abraham based on absolutely unconditional love. Not because of anything that he did, and not because of anything that he didn't do, just because he loved him. And that's why it's leaving out all these amazing things that he accomplished because he just wanted us to know, I love Abraham. And that's why I'm selecting him. That it's beyond anything rational. I just love him. Unconditional love. So that's big. That, that's, that's really big. Um, so I'll tell you this, this last thing. I uh, heard the story from Rabbi Stern about Rav Moshe Feinstein. And... Um, 
again, I just ask you to put yourself in his shoes as you hear this story. Um, he was a, a great Torah scholar, uh, and he became the the posak hador, the the halachic decider, the the decider of matters of Jewish law in the entire world. Uh, in his generation, which was just a few a few years ago, he died. Um, so when he was younger, but he was still a, a, a man and he was married, and I imagine he had children at this age, he was still living in Russia and he was coming to America and he had his Torah writings. So you can imagine, the, I mean, his, his halachic decisions are, are studied to this day in every yeshiva around the world. So he had his writings and his chedushim, his original insights. I mean, this is, this is treasure, this is actual treasure, right? Um, and he's, you know, religion in Russia was against the law. So he's trying, he had packed them in a certain way that maybe they won't bother them. Well, they found them and they destroyed them. So imagine you're him. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? You're thinking, so God doesn't want my service anymore. God certainly doesn't want my insights anymore doesn't want my Torah study anymore. Because this is like my life's work, basically, and it's been destroyed in front of me. Right? So we know the end of the story. And we know that he didn't say that to himself. Or didn't allow himself to, to live based on that negative sense of rejection. Right? But what I'm, what, what, I want to ask you this, this question. Or make this statement, which is the following. He didn't continue to go on because he was Rav Moshe. Because he went on, he became Rav Moshe. Let me say that again. He didn't continue to go on with his studies and his work and his purpose in life because he was Rav Moshe, the great Rav Moshe. Because he continued to go on, he became the great Rav Moshe. And so it's that that ability in ourselves to invest in ourselves and reinvest in ourselves and reinvest in ourselves and reinvest in ourselves, that's the formula for greatness. And I'll just end with a teaching that I heard from Rabbi Shlomo Katz in the name of the Ger Rebbe, and it means so much to me. So the Ger Rebbe said that this command, Lech Lecha, to go forward, right? That that wasn't just said to Abraham, that that said to every Jew for all times to keep going. And that's our charge to keep going, and God says, don't stop, keep going, I love you.